Hello. It's been a minute, hasn't it? It's just been a really busy year, so maybe I'll make an episode about what I've been up to. But for today, I'm actually pretty proud of myself because it's only been about a week since recording and releasing this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I am super pleased and honored to have Bentley Brown join me today for a conversation as part of the Taiwanese Diaspora Friendspiration series. Bentley is a filmmaker and he just received his PhD uh, and we talk about the creative process, about growing up in Chad, a French and Arabic speaking country in Africa, and about filmmaking. Bentley Brown. Revolution from Afar. Revolution from Afar. So, Alright, and we are recording. Alright, Bentley. Hello, hello, welcome. Hey, how's it going? This is the Taiwanese and Friends series. And so this is nothing to do with Taiwan. But Bentley, you do a lot of filmmaking about identity. You grew up in Chad. We've met a couple of times the last couple of months. Had a private film screening of your upcoming movie. Also had a screening of your movie that's currently out on PBS and on the film circuit. Give us like an introduction to who you are, which is a complicated question, I know, because you talked about this whole identity thing, but the floor is yours. Oof, wow, that's a big one. Um, I guess I would identify first and foremost as uh, non-identifying. <laughs> and that uh, I, I, I was born in the U.S. in Dallas, Texas, and moved to Chad as a kid. Uh, my parents worked there for an NGO as sort of like medical mission mission work. And uh, through that process, both myself and my brother uh, had what I would call kind of like identity formation um, in which we, you know, we like we were in a neighborhood where we uh, had to learn Arabic to fit in and to make friends. Um, Chad also uses a lot of French, so we learned French as well. And that was pretty impactful on me. I had a friend of mine, Abdel uh, Aziz, who I grew up with, who one day was, he was jokingly upset with me and said that, hey, you've been here for so long and, and you learned Arabic and French, but you didn't ever teach me English. <laughs> <laughs> so I do feel like that was a pretty impactful time 
on me and that uh, later on in, in university in the U.S., I studied something called international studies for my bachelor's degree, uh, but eventually wound up exploring filmmaking as kind of a hobby and then later on as a career. That's pretty amazing. Can you do an introduction in Arabic? Uh, Oh, you really want me to do yeah, an introduction? Yeah. Oh, uh, Assalamu alaikum, it's me, Bentley Brown. I'm an American, I'm American, I'm American, I'm American, I'm في شمال تشاد بيتكلموا فيها اللغة العربية أكثر حاجة إضافة للغة الفرنسية اللغتين هي لغة لغتين رسميتين بالبلد فنحن غالبا استخدمنا اللغة العربية في حياتنا اليومية وأنا بعدين بعد ما رجعت أمريكا للجامعة نقلت لمجال صناعة الأفلام وأغلب أفلامي بتعالج مواضيع الهوية الانتقال بين البلدان وخاصة استخدام اللغات زي اللغة العربية شكرا Amazing Let's take it back to when you first landed in Chad When did you learn Arabic? How old were you? How did you go about learning Arabic? Um, how long were you there? What did you do? Um, what was your childhood like in that period of time? Oof. Well, I was I, I learned Arabic actually kind of by surprise in a way i assumed that when we were moving from the united states to chad that we would learn french because it seemed to resemble english more and would be easier to learn and when i arrived in chad the fir- literally like the first night the friends of friends of friends picked us up from the airport and one of them said salam alaikum it's like the greeting in arabic and taught us this greeting the next day uh, my brother and I wake up jet lagged, and another fr- <laughs> friend in our yard is teaching us more phrases. Were you in elementary school at the time? At the time, yeah, yeah, um, including the phrase. So, <laughs> uh, this guy had had captured a hedgehog and brought it to us with the hopes that we would be interested in looking at the spiky creature. And as he like revealed this hedgehog, he said the sentence "Abun Gunfut Yakul Ful." Abun Gunfut is the word for hedgehog. Yakul is the verb to eat, and Ful is uh, beans, or in this case, peanuts. Ful Sudanese peanuts. So he's basically teaching us a sentence: "A hedgehog eats peanuts," and that was the first full sentence I learned in Arabic. And as uh, my same friend Abdelaziz would make fun of years later. It's an absolutely useless sentence because hedgehogs actually don't eat peanuts. <laughs> when did you discover that? <laughs> that they don't eat peanuts? Yeah. After trying to force feed them to eat peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> did you go to local schools, international schools? Were you homeschooled? Yeah, so Chad doesn't really have many international schools. There is one in... In Jemena, the capital city that operated in French. And we did not speak French at the beginning. We actually were, as a family, learning Arabic first. 
So we never really seriously considered it because it would have meant like, you know, we wouldn't have moved. So my family moved eventually to a town in central Chad called Ati, where my dad uh, did medical work. And it would have meant that we would have been sort of like separated just for the sake of schooling and would have had to learn French at like kind of this, you know, high school academic level. And instead, as they had already considered and were mostly planning on doing, my mom and dad actually taught us classes, my mom primarily. Uh, and so she did this amazing job of <laughs> researching curricula and bringing textbooks. I think all of them ordered from the United States uh, with us to Chad and basically like studying up on every topic that we would study and teaching us. Um, she's, I, I was very lucky because she's an engineer and my dad's a doctor. So we were covered on like STEM topics for sure. Uh, for the arts and uh, let's say like the humanities in general, it was kind of like admittedly new territory, especially for my, my mom. Um, and she actually would talk about like, you know, English classes and literature and stuff that she, they weren't really her specialization, but that she enjoyed going through the content as she was preparing to teach us the content, which I thought was really cool. And then my brother and I are total failures. We popped out poet and filmmaker. So when did you decide you wanted to do that? Or how did you discover a passion for this? Ooh. So, okay. So failure with asterisk, right? Cause I enjoy it, but no, obviously. Uh, <laughs> like, did you like go around with a camera and Chad and like record your life when you were at, a youngin at the time and did you think you would become a filmmaker later or was this like a college thing or like a post-college thing it's a, it's a little bit of both i had a friend named abakar who was involved with theater in our town along with other friends muhammad jibreen isa um, they did really hilarious sketches like sketch comedy and skits that could be performed at social functions uh community gatherings cultural centers and they often were paired with some kind of a social message. So the idea was like theater, but like for social impact in a way. At some point, uh, Abakar suggested, and we were kind of like brainstorming, what if we tried to take those same people and shoot a movie with them? And so we actually shot our first film this way. Uh, we had a, a loose screenplay that Abakar had written, and I was able to get a Sony Handycam in the United States on like vacation and then brought it back to Chad to shoot scenes. One of our main problems was that our actors were used to the theater. And so they were used to projecting and speaking really dramatically with their hands waving everywhere to hammer in the point. Whereas in cinema, you really want to take uh, notice of subtleties and try to use the advantage of, you know, essentially like a big screen to show a lot more nuance. So that was one of our challenges at the beginning. Uh, I still didn't think that filmmaking was like a career at the time. I still wanted to do something different. Um, I think I had this like, this sort of may maybe slight influence from my dad's career, but also just from before. And I had, I had an interest in sciences. And so if you'd asked me like in my teenage years what I was going to study, I would have told you, uh, biochemist. Um, I was I was interested in medicine <laughs> development um, and chemistry in general. Did you think you'd ever do like medical missionary or like Doctors Without Borders kind of stuff? For, ironically, even though that was like my parents' career trajectory, I didn't really consider that. It's a little it's a little weird. It's a great question. Yeah, 
Like why at the time did I not by default kind of assume that path for myself? Um, I definitely had the hobby interest in filmmaking and played a lot of basketball, did a lot of community work. So something about that hands-on engagement was I think more exciting for me. And by the time I applied for college in the United States, I was leaning much more towards the direction of something that would be more hands-on and kind of like people immediately like people related politically or diplomatically or whatever. So I wound up majoring in international studies at Emory university in Atlanta. Thinking that you would still do film. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I realized I didn't really complete the story. Yeah. So like at Emory, I still went back and so we'd already shot a couple films in this sort of like amateur style, like run and gun deal. And did you teach yourself how to edit? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So our first film we edited on a VCR. How so do you do that? You set up a videotape and you make sure you don't mess up and you hit pause, record, pause, record, and you can mix in live sound through an actual mixer, like an actual sound mixer, like a good sound equipment. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. The, oh God, the, awesome. the downside to that, I don't recommend it, um, if, especially if you have access to a computer that was made after 2002. But the downside is that you get that kind of staticky, like remnants, like these artifacts between each cut, uh, for the most part. So it it really interferes with the playback of the video. Now, I mean, I understand it's like it's a hip thing right now, and there's probably filters for that static, whatever. But <laughs> at the time, it was not our goal. Uh, from that, from those that handful, a couple films that we made. In college, by my, I think the end of my sophomore year, I was actually able to get like a small, like a $500 grant from a professor to go back and shoot some stuff actually related to public health is the way I framed it. And then we basically like pocketed the money and then shot a fictional movie with that 500 bucks. What were you going to try to highlight when your proposal? We actually did shoot a public health video. We just never really like edit, finalized it and published it. So that, that video was looking at malnutrition specifically. Okay. And we, we shot a lot of content with um, at my dad's clinic with my Arabic teacher uh, at the time, uh, Ustaz Muhammad Ali Bukhari, who, was, who I later made a film about. Um, yeah, and from there, you know, like once that film, each of these films was taking off to its own level, right? So like the second film went on national TV. The third film went to the Rotterdam Film Festival. Wow. And I think I still didn't really consider filmmaking a viable career at the time. So... You know, I graduated from college. I went and worked in Sudan with uh, the Carter Center, which was tied to Emory University, and with like through which I'd done an internship and taken some classes that the former U.S. President Jimmy Carter had been involved with. And in Sudan, I met a lot of friends. I'm always drawn to people who are like in the film industry, <laughs> so I'm making friends who are themselves abandoning various other academic or scientific careers to explore filmmaking. And that was just kind of my crowd, especially in Sudan. Yeah. And people that I exchanged music with on hard drive and stuff and people I would just go hang out with and people they would connect me to when I would come back and visit Khartoum. And one of our friends, uh, Alia Sirel Khatim, was actually leaving to go do a master's in film at uh, the London Film School in the UK. And that got me like thinking, oh, oh, wow. Like, what if I did, what if my, what if my next degree or next step was actually dedicated to filmmaking? And that led to the shooting of Faisal Goes West which is a script that I actually wrote for a film application, film school application, never went to that film school, but shot the film. And then from there on out, it's like largely been filmmaking, but kind of with this mix of academia and other explorations. 
can you walk us through what your process is? Do you envision, because you've done so many different types, right? You've kind of done explorations around what it means to be a third culture kid, identity, like Muslim American, I guess like fictional drama theater, et cetera. Like, do you have a specific process that you follow or what have you honed over the years as you've gotten more experience and probably more self-critical or more confident or however you want to consider that? It's a great question because it relates to not just what I wind up doing or what I've honed, but also what I want to do. I think those two things can often be intention. So I started with fiction, as I mentioned, just movies. They may not have been the most believable movies or the most entertaining, but they were meant to be straight up screenplay to screen, you know, transport you to a fictional story movies. Faisal Goes West, which I mentioned, was a short film that we shot in the United States. It was my first film to actually shoot in the United States. And making that film taught me a ton of lessons sort of related to bigger scale filmmaking in the fiction world. One is just that you need a whole lot more money than what I've been used to working with. Number two is the length of project is important. And so if you're shooting a film that's a short, it should ideally be as short as possible, roughly speaking. It's short as it needs to be. A lot of short films that will go to film festivals, that will get selected for like different forms of online kind of, you know, advertising or pushing or whatever, are in like seven minute to 10 minute range, right? So you'll see on Vimeo, the common app or website that people might explore short films through through other film festivals, uh, through the, what is it, the staff picks on Vimeo, um, Short of the Week is another one. These films are generally fairly short, and they're engaging in a short duration. The longer you go, the harder it is to get that film out as a short, because essentially it's taking up the time of more than one other short film. So Faisal Goes West was 35 minutes long, And it was very tough to program at film festivals because at 35 minutes, that would be taking up five different seven-minute short films, essentially. Now, that said, a lot of the most powerful and impactful and award-winning short films are in that kind of 20-minute space. Rarely that medium-length space. So, like, I know this sounds like really film film nerdy and everything, but this is like real talk right here. Because a lot of people make their first film and they're like, oh, it's going to be like as long as it needs to be. And if it falls between basically 25 minutes and I would say 59, 60, maybe even more like 65, it's almost useless because there's like, there's like very few platforms that are designed to promote films of that length. There are exceptions. Like if you're more experimental, there's more grace in a way, but there's also, if you're more experimental, there's less places you can go. Right. Then otherwise you want to do a feature and a feature usually is described as above an hour. But obviously, this is like we're talking about movies that you would see like in the theater or just like opening Netflix, whatever. And they're going to be 70 plus minutes, more often 80, 90 plus minutes. So I had this dream to make the, the feature, right? And we'd actually made some of the couple of things we made in Chad before, like in our more run and gun style, actually were feature length, ironically. But they definitely weren't on a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or, or millions of dollars budget. And so I had difficulty even just comprehending and, you know, putting together the language around like a treatment and a, 
press kit, like a pitch deck and all that. I didn't have the experience to do that for a larger scale thing. And I feel like I spent a lot of time almost, you could almost say wasted a lot of time trying to make feature length fiction movie uh, unsuccess unsuccessfully. So where I had kind of a rebirth in my filmmaking was actually abandoning that goal, at least temporarily and moving to the space of essay filmmaking. And I did my master's in something called communication culture and technology at Georgetown university. So admittedly not like a film school, but something that gave space for creative work and encouraged creative work. And my idea was that I would use that master's to explore ideas that I could apply to films rather than just going to like a film school that might be super expensive. And I might regret in that sense at the end of the day. And during that master's program, I TA'd for <laughs> a documentary film class with someone named Bernie Cook at Georgetown. And uh, this professor basically gave me some films to watch that I would turn around and, and use in class or, or teach as a TA. And one of them was Sherman's March by Ross McElwee. And Sherman's March, I think, won an Academy Award for like best documentary, some, something like 30 some odd years ago. And in the film, it starts off like a very kind of a sterile academic documentary. You have what we kind of make fun of as the voice of God, this like transatlantic, like, you know, like in. In, 18, kind of thing. in 1863, William Tecumseh Sherman marched from like, you know, this, yeah, David Attenborough, uh, but worse. Um, and the film, like, it starts off that way. It's telling you all this. It's like force feeding you information. Uh, a friend of another director, a friend of mine from China, uh, Yinan, who I just, just saw a couple of weeks ago, makes fun of these films as you open your brain and pour the information in. It's like high school, you know, like, hey, time to learn. Open your head. We pour the information in. So it starts off with that style. Then the narrator stops <laughs> and the director jumps in and says, yeah, I was making this movie about this historical topic. And then basically like my girlfriend and I broke up. And then suddenly you see a picture of this director just pacing back and forth in some like abandoned apartment in Atlanta. And the rest, the rest of the film, now the tra trajectory of the film takes this very personal turn in which he's documenting like dates that his mom is setting him up on like blind dates or dates with like family, friends, daughters and stuff to help him recover from this breakup. And I was like shocked at the time. I was like, you can do that in filmmaking. Like you can start this academic project take the money for it and then make some personal story <laughs> and connecting the dots. I figured, Oh shit. Like, yeah, ever since I've had my cameras that I use for shooting movies in Chad, I've been recording a lot of like mundane daily life stuff. Like we had this time where, uh, you know, my dad had doctors visiting from Hong Kong and my brother and I are, uh, introducing them to our GameCube and we're all just playing GameCube games like super smash brothers or something. And I have the camera running in the corner and at the time, it seemed like a very mundane, boring moment. <laughs> but now it's like, oh, my God, this is interesting. Like this, this would work in some kind of a assembled narrative. And so from there, I started working within that space of home video and constructing narrative. And eventually that led to the film Ustaz, which talks about my Arabic teacher that I mentioned earlier. Did the narratives come during before or after you started filming? Would you just film clips that you would use later or did you have like a story arc in mind? So the, the, by rule, these films are assembled from footage that was not meant to be part of that film, if that makes sense. That was like one of my creative rules. 
that's something I was exploring at the time too, is that as long as your rules are sort of reasonable, your constraints that you work within, they often lead to sort of the most creativity. So if I have like several limitations, then I'm more likely to to be able to even just make my mind up and like go a certain direction and make something. It's like engineering. When you have constraints, then you're like forced to actually figure out how to think outside the box more. There you go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And problem solve and all that stuff. Whereas if, if like the world's your oyster and you have like a $500 million budget, then okay, I could do anything literally. So, so that's kind of the, kind of the still. And, and with that, um, I had some other rules I would put on myself. So I would say, hey, I'm going to start, you know, working on a story that will be a edited from my collection of home video that I took, not just me, right? Like other people that other people took as well in the same sort of time span and geographic location. And that if I was to, for example, show music in a film, I wanted to commit that to, to the, the music being diegetic, meaning that it's on camera, it's on screen. We see the performer perform it at some point. Now I'll cheat that because I'll, I'll use the music as if it was like a, composed soundtrack piece for the film but at some point i will show you the person playing that tune or i'll show you the source of that sound and that i think in the end that gives it a very gives the film a very believable sense the whole thing's been constructed from the archive itself rather than bringing in new elements did you do that with the film that we saw behind the sun the short no the uh, revolution from afar revolutions from afar because there was a very very quick snippet of you like in the drum circle or like in the in the mountains of Colorado, like like mm-hmm, the last mm-hmm, one, right? Mm-hmm. Like but prior to that, it's kind of just everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, that film's actually the more one of the probably the more conventional sort of like documentaries that I've shot. Very observational still. Like there's no narration or anything. But there, yeah. I mean there's a lot of in Revolution from Afar, which follows Sudanese American musicians and poets navigating the Sudanese revolution in 2019 while while being in America. It's so like while being cut off and they're asking questions of identity and belonging. Like, do they even have a right to, to do anything related to the revolution in Sudan? Like, are they Sudanese enough to, to stake claim in the revolution? That because they're so musical, then yeah, hell yeah. Like, the music in the film is performed and you, you see where it's coming from in every case. The only exception is like the end credit scene, which is also performed by several people who are in the film. So while we're on that topic, do you want to plug that where people can watch it? Because I think it's still on PBS maybe. And you're taking invitations to screen at various cities and around the globe. Revolution from Afar is screening on PBS or through the PBS app, through the website, um, also the World Channel, which is like a branch of PBS, I guess. Because it was part of uh, Afro Pop, which is a series curated by a group called Black Public Media. So yeah, totally, it's free to watch. Um, I guess the United States, technically North America, and we're working on international distribution. So amazing. Okay, any advice to aspiring filmmakers who may have started, who have an interest in filmmaking, or who are actively submitting and pitching, um, but not getting anything? What would you say? I guess I guess the most efficient thing is give a hot take on the film industry and the film funding scene. And to say that for a long time, I thought that going the route of grants and applying for grants and getting support that way was the only way to make a, the film that needed to be made. To the extent that I, I was even teaching filmmaking, like producing classes in 
sort of instructing students to do this, to go find the grants you need and use grants sort of as leverage to build your team and build your budget and to build your image as a filmmaker. And then in retrospect, I think it's probably more efficient to just make money somehow <laughs> and save it and then make your films that way, especially in this sort of like breaking through stage. If that makes sense. So like, like as a filmmaker, as an indie filmmaker, you could, you could straight up a say no to jobs. Cause you're like, Oh no, I have to devote all my time to like putting movies together. And then B like spend straight up, you know, like a 40 hour work week on a job application, like a big one that really required a lot of documentation and a lot of materials to be prepared all for at maximum for the bulk of film grants, $50,000, which is like nothing for what we're trying, like trying to raise for like a first feature type deal. You want to be easily in the six figures dollars wise and often for an actual legit shot at a film that would take you places as a filmmaker to lead to other opportunities to make more films. It's going to be 2 million plus dollars. I mean, usually so 50,000 bucks, not, not like that, huge of a difference but it, the, I think the bigger difference is, is just the street cred that gives you and then the people that you would meet especially if that was tied to any form of mentoring that's that's good stuff in much worse cases we're doing all that work to apply for a grant that's like $10,000 right or like 15000 or $5,000 at that point I say no 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 like try your best if you're going to spend that time and effort and money try your best to work a job that, that you can save money through and save that money for yourself so self fund in a sense that's that's like my biggest biggest advice yeah like once you get to the space of like six figures and stuff you just you you need so you would have had had to gone through this gauntlet of experiences and meeting people and networking and getting films out there to even be able to get to that level does that make sense so it's not but do you think there's like any sort of benefit to knowing how to do it like go through the grunt work you're kind of establishing credibility by even having like done the hard work of getting $10,000 to start or $50,000 to be able to scale up, right? Or no? I mean, if you can, but I think what happens is you just don't get 99% of the grants you apply for. Yeah. I mean, it depends. Some people are different circumstances. I mean, the, the most sort of ripe area for getting grants I've seen so far is Saudi Arabia, where there's been this recent interest in filmmaking from the government to help improve, you know, the country's image. And so they're like really aggressively funding Saudi filmmakers. So like that's a place where I've seen friends mathematically have a good shot at getting a grant. That's, even they don't get a lot of the grants they apply for. Whereas if you're looking at the U.S. or you know, which is it's compared to like Europe and Canada and other places, has has in Saudi Arabia has had like a much lower ratio of of money or a much like rel like relatively less amount of money to go around to independent artists. It's just like a it's like a crapshoot. It's just really tough. Is there space kind of like in the VC model where they do like seed funding from friends and family or small corporations, whatever, to get started? A little bit. I mean, crowdfunding had a lot of its biggest projects in the early days in films. So Kickstarter, Indiegogo, those kind of platforms. But I just so you're saying venture capital and stuff. I and mean, these are things that like, I mean, like, you just gotta, tech he had, I guess it's like, you not, just, not the I same. mean, but to, to, to do that successfully, I, yeah, I mean, you need gusto. So you kind of like maybe your first time around, maybe it's kind of a sexy appeal. Like, oh, you haven't made a film before. So maybe people will put money behind you. But other than that, you just, you just need like 
experience. You need confidence that can come from experience. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Being able to like, like, I feel like I've seen more friends succeed at the whole saving money thing, you know, buying a, a professional, ca- like having a professional camera, at least in the like, you know, mirrorless, you know, Sony, uh, I don't know, Nikon, Fuji space, something that you can use for decently professional projects, build your equipment, like make money, build that whole equipment room, flesh out your material, um, make sure you're covered and a lot of other things as well. I feel like that's much more efficient than, than just like waiting for this magic grant. That's going to like help you rent those things in a way. I don't know. So I mean, you kind of did it though. No, Uh, no, no. No, you don't think you you wouldn't consider yourself as like making it. Ah, uh, no, no, no. I'm far from it. I think I I right now with Revolution from Afar, it's probably my most wide reaching film. Yeah. And I did get I haven't gotten like film organization grants, but I have gotten small grants from my university of like a few hundred dollars, you know, a little bit over a thousand dollars a pop here and there, and that has been a difference maker in being able to enable me to to grow that access to equipment and to, you know, travel with the film, that kind of thing. What's your preferred kit right now for shooting? So, and what's your workflow? Do you keep stuff on the cloud or do you have like external hard drives? Oh, wow. The nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think both are important. I think the cloud is not permanent, um, nor, nor are hard drives. <laughs> so always having things backed up in multiple places. I always imagine if, if I lost a hard drive in a fire, like <laughs> would the other hard drives not be within reach of that fire? <laughs> you know, um, what else? Cause you film a lot on your camera phone and then you also have a variety of other stuff. Like do you use a GoPro? Do you have the mirrorless cameras that you're talking about? Yeah. So yeah, I have, I have GoPros and stuff as well. I mean like the camera phone stuff is a little unique. So that's, that's like only for things that I might use in like sort of an archive assembly video later. And it's rare that I would use that, that, but I do, I'm conscious of when I need to, like when I know I'm going to have shooting something that might be used for a feature film, <laughs> I switch my camera to horizontal orientation. It's like a, okay. it's like a clue that like this might be of use in the future. I don't know what it'll be used for, you know? And it kind of reminds me of those days that like back with my Handycam and Chad that I would take footage of just random stuff, but thinking, okay, this could be important in the future if I was to come back and use it for some kind of film. For uh, for camera setup, I mean, I have a I have a Sony A7S Mark III right now, um, which is really good in low light. I'm I'm lazy with that, so it's nice to have something that can work in low light really well. Uh, for for sound, like anything within the Zoom family, I've used Tascam are all great. Um, I do value sound a lot, and want to make sure that I'm covered basis on sound. Uh, stabilization is very important. So whether it's a tripod for static shots uh, or some kind of stabilizer, like a gimbal type thing, that's also important as well. Um, and something that I have, I'm guilty of not always, always committing to. Um, I think those are all some, these are all some basics we're talking about right here. Like those, the, everything I mentioned right there, if, if you could build that individually and have that on hand, then you can do everything from essentially, you know, rent some other stuff and shoot a short film, right, for your own career, essentially, or you could solicit your services 
to make money. So you could shoot promotional things for companies. You could shoot ads. You could shoot uh, music videos, things like that, which which have been avenues for people to kind of get their practice, but also their name out. I love this. What do you think of the growing popularity of YouTube? Do you see that as in conflict with professionally trained documentary filmmakers or like feature filmmakers? Or like, do you think that they tell like reach a different type of audience? Or do you think like maybe the stories that they're telling are not as deep? Or do you think it just serves different things? So it's like, it's a lot of how-to videos on YouTube versus like emotional journey type of things in film. Ooh, yeah, I think, I think YouTube, I think has, I think the more successful things on YouTube have an immediate laugh factor or practical application in life, or they're like a song or something. And that things that are more deep, they're a bit deeper and engage at a, at a deeper level. Uh, the, their success is often more, more often driven by like niche interests and just accessibility for target audience and stuff. So I think on the whole, to shoot for YouTube, you would, I, I personally, I, I'm more attracted to a certain style of shooting for YouTube that would not be directly relatable to filmmaking. I could take lessons from filmmaking and apply it to YouTube, but overall those are going to be two different forms. And I've seen that happen. I mean, I even have a lot of social media stuff, like just funny stuff, I'll, or presumably funny things I'll put on TikTok or Instagram, whatever. And I try to do like a collage of those, put them on YouTube. And even though they had hundreds of thousands of views on those other platforms on YouTube, they don't get more than like 2,000 views, right? So it's not, it's not the content was not, design it's not like i didn't make it in a way that was optimized for youtube mm. so i think youtube is kind of like if you're okay making a video that's between eight and ten minutes <laughs> and that is funny <laughs> in some way and engaging in like a really in your face manner at some point early on and if you're okay with you know killing a bit of time at the beginning to keep people's eyes tuned and uh hook them and to remind them to subscribe later and all those kind of things, then you're in a good place. I think right. those are, those are important things to be aware of and to also be okay with doing as a maker. Okay. I think I want to jump over to this topic of identity. We talked a little bit last night about this. Do you think that your filmmaking journey has led you to think in deeper ways or different ways about your identity specifically? And then I guess as a third culture kid, um, how you, because you're drawn to live outside the U.S., right? Like, chatty and experience has shaped you in certain ways. Do you find yourself lucky that I found this form of self-expression through film versus, like, writing or poetry or other stuff? Or maybe you do those things as well? Yeah. Ooh. Hmm. I think my first, my gut reaction to that is that the filmmaking is not a place that brings me in touch with my identity more so than helps me express that. So that that the if you want to call it the, the emotional work or, or whatever it is that brings one in touch with their identity, that's actually happening in other capacities. And that filmmaking sort of a offshoot of that, but also a very important way to maybe to process it and share it with others. Ooh, yeah, and you got is it poetry and <laughs> um, I think for for one, conversations with people are probably the most some of the most formative moments in which I'll just by realizing something I hadn't thought about before really help 
bring me to considering new possibilities for just for myself, but also for like the way I view the universe. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Although I, I will say I'm very drawn now, like right now as we speak to, it's kind of, it's already kind of cliche, but there's this like genre uh, then kind of, you call it like experimental nonfiction or experimental documentary in which people have been really engaging with critical thinking and ideas in a way that plays with the boundary between fiction and nonfiction, um, really creative sound designs, uh, often visual experimentation, sometimes like collage kind of filmmaking to where, so like I have my archive of films and I'm, I'm often writing a story for you to then, then I'll sort of bring to life through my home videos that I have, right? Like through whatever, whatever my archive is. And in this case, the, with the collage work, people are throwing images to you in kind of a more random manner, right? It's like more of a, not, not purely random, but the idea is kind of an art when you, you have juxtaposition of images. So you have, I don't know, I'll give you a terrible example. Here's a hot dog and here's a bird, right? If I see a painting of a bird, I'm like, oh, it's a bird. Yeah. You see the hot dogs. Hot dog. If I see the two together, I'm like, what the hell is the connection? <laughs> you know, and I and I will, as a human, likely start to create some kind of narrative, which I think is interesting. And so was, <laughs> that was a terrible example, but but you can you can now imagine like movies that or films that are that are that are throwing images, sort of like selected for a reason, but that don't necessarily immediately tie to each other, but that the audience is trusted to make their own connections and in some cases when it's done very cleverly it can be very powerful so like in writing leave a little bit of white page for them to like the reader to bring about their experience you want the viewer to fill in the blanks in a way yeah well in writing almost the it might be something more like small chapters of a novel or a novella or or something or even like a poetry chat book that really don't seem to connect to each other and then have the reader like try to make those connections mm. Okay, we'll wrap it up. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> I really appreciate this. I mean, we're doing this like at midnight right now. <laughs> oh yeah, well it's it's earlier somewhere else. Um, but yeah, no, no, it's it's been great to talk. I'm not gonna make you describe what the next fork in the road might lead you to. Uh, yeah, because I have no idea right now. <laughs> um, hopefully, more more films. Yeah, I think another like is one last thing for the whole filmmaking or like creative, even creative work, whatever is it's okay to it's okay to start projects and not finish them it's okay to have ideas that are kind of half-baked and stuff and to go down an avenue for a bit and realize like yeah it's probably not going to go anywhere um or even to not know like how to take it further and that's the natural process of making i think that like to get held up on one project as opposed to exploring several different avenues would be pretty uh limiting so yeah, so yeah, uh, pursue more than one thing. It's okay to have more than one thing in the kitchen or whatever you, your metaphor is. Do you find yourself going back to stuff that you kind of, cause some people abandon work, right? They like do it first draft, abandon it forever. But do you ever find yourself going back to? Occasionally, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's a, that's actually a good point for filmmaking, especially for editing, especially the archive area or whatever, right? If I have, if I have a film that I've got the material, I have my approach like my structure my whatever whatever angle i want to take to that material 
and I give it a shot and I get feedback on it and I give another shot and I get feedback on it and I give another shot and I get feedback on it. And it's people like, ah, oh, it's not really like working for me. Um, you know, oh, you might need to work on this a little bit more. That's usually a sign that like, yeah, it's not ready. Um, not that you have to make things for people to understand or whatever, but if it's been like a few iterations and people are like, yeah, um, what exactly like that? Like, you know, for me personally, that just wouldn't be something I'd want to put out yet. But as happens very often to revisit that project or that archive two years down the line or three or even five years down the line can offer some really interesting opportunities. I mean, the temptation, as I mentioned, the, the whole experimental documentary thing earlier right, right. and stuff. Temptation is that, like, now you just get tempted with, the, like, the more nuanced the thing is, the more interesting it is to you, right? Like, I saw this film recently at a festival where I need to, like, not identify this person, but where someone basically shot a film about, like, expat life. Like, it was under the guise of some scientific question, right? Like, they, they were exploring a topic, like a like a social science topic kind of thing. But they basically like just lived and I, I don't like the word expat. I think it like I think it's used in a way that otherizes people and and also has like this racial like superiority thing. It's like often white people and whatever. I mean this goes into the immigrant versus expat yeah, discussion yeah. that I often think about. Yeah. So it's like this like embedded like colonial remnant kind of deal. It's just it's like meh. I mean I understand that I understand, yeah, like the the like potential cringiness of a neo colonial situation. I got you on that. I'm just saying that the word itself is like ugh, it's like saying foreigner, you know. So anyway, but this film like admittedly like 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 only like almost only featured expats. <laughs> like the European type expat and in a place that was not European. And and I was like, damn, like this being un like not aware of itself was kind of like yeah why why'd you make it you know but i was also tempted to be like dude <laughs> just go one more edit on your project like dive right into the fact that you mostly only interviewed quote unquote expats make it about that weird ass decision and it will be a really interesting film and so there's there's something with that that like a lot of projects that are out there Maybe just need that one one more. This is my biased opinion on someone else's project, but maybe they need that one more step, that one more review. Maybe it's sparked by a conversation. Maybe it's sparked by someone else's opinion. Maybe you're not the person to finish it. Maybe someone else comes in and, and edits or or, uh, or reworks the narrative somehow. But so like, there's a lot of stuff out there that could benefit from that, especially in the indie realm where we're like, you know, we're working largely independently without any kind of like a, a you know body of reviewers around us or something. Yeah. I was like, last question on just like feedback and edit. So we had the honor of watching your next film. I don't know, it might still be in final edit mode or whatever. Do you have a good sense for when that is complete or not? You're mentioning that you submitted it, but then pulled it out of a festival. But the version that we saw, me not knowing much about films, thought it was great. Obviously, some other people had some notes for you. You're asking for specific feedback for our take as like a audience unfamiliar with the story, right? Do you feel like you have more left on that one to do? Yeah, I think I think that that was the one where the reason I was even doing feedback screenings is because I wasn't sure of what I was pre I was presenting. So even though there will be positive feedback and people will be like, "Oh my god, that was cool!" Like I enjoyed watching that. It may not be what I want to put out quite yet. And some of the questions that I'm dealing with that film are probably related to questions of self for myself, right? Like questions of my own style of making and kind of what I like how I want to engage with audiences and one of my big issues is 
you know, I can't remove from my mind. I've just done a PhD here in the United States for four years in academia. I cannot remove from my mind the most common reaction to things that I, that I produce, which is largely going to be from, and I'm going to like, I'm going to do what I'm talking against, right? So I'm racially essentializing here, but like largely from like white academics who will watch what I present and say, Oh, but you're white. And then talk about, you know, my point of view or my position in the thing. And then I'll come back and say, well, yeah, cool. But I grew up in Chad and I speak Arabic and I'm the reason I'm making this film is because I have a very sort of self like driven interest in the topic. And then they do it the other way. They go, Oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, now you're like a better white person kind of thing, you know? And I don't think that either one of those routes is really productive. I think that we're in a space where we're as a society becoming like more and more self-aware in a sense with all of our communication and our memes and our shared language and everything. And at, while not ignoring, you know, erasures and grievances and, and injustices historically and today, right. And working to, to correct those, I think we still need to imagine the better future for ourselves and like work to it, you know? And so I'm, I'm, I find myself really tragically distracted by this question of like, Oh, Ooh, like I'm watching other filmmakers work and I'm like, oh, do they have a right to tell their story? Are they like this race or that ethnicity or that or that? And that stuff's messed up because, you know, we're never going to be the exact identity of the thing we're making. You know, if I shoot a film on, I don't know, uh, like the life cycle of a sunflower, like I'm never going to be a plant that I know of. <laughs> so, you know, how do we move forward? Like, how do we how do we not just destroy, self-destruct all of our creative work bogged bog down in these essentially largely like sociological or sociologically psychosociologically rooted uh interests does that make sense i think so i mean you're not striving there's not this like element of perfection that you're waiting to achieve this sounds much more like an internal reflection kind of like how you want to present the work in the message that you're trying to get across as opposed to like oh i don't think it's good enough because of some superficial bar that you've set for yourself in terms of like whatever profession might mean to you. Well, how that relates to that film is that as I'm editing the story, I'm, I'm, I'm also in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about okay, this story is set in Saudi Arabia. I did not grow up in Saudi Arabia. I moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, I grew up in Chad, a couple countries over and in the United States, I have a unique relationship to Saudi Arabia in the sense that I was well, a living there. Right. And the story revolves around things I was involved with filmmaking wise and, academics wise and stuff like that but also be like in the sense of of you know being in chad you can't avoid saudi arabia kind of being advertised everywhere like saudi arabia built one of the main markets in the capital city of chad it built uh, a masjid and a market near the basketball court that i played at growing up and i i ate dates from saudi arabia in the market you know that were donated actually from saudi arabia so so like I have, I'm already thinking of all these things to stake my claim and being allowed to tell the story in Saudi Arabia. So that's, that's kind of like the thing that's on my mind. So I'm testing this, the, the film, seeing what, how you guys react to it because already on my mind, I have these like bigger questions of, you know, agency and responsibility and ethics and, and telling a story. And so that's, that's kind of the struggle that I have. Cause I, cause at the end of the day, a good film is probably not going to be bogged down by those questions. I think that people being aware of ethics is actually really important. So like being able to, to know the questions I should be, should be asking myself is very important. To have answers to those questions is almost impossible. So I, I need to be able to balance that and, and not be bogged down by it. So that's kind of where I'm at. So some of the things I'm doing in that film, for example, I'm 
and now we're like way in the weeds on film editing and like construction of narrative and stuff. But I'm actually balancing a version of the film in which my voice is present and I'm telling this narration. I'm telling the story with my actual voice versus removing my voice and just writing whatever is necessary in text. And even that opens a, itself up to another series of concerns, right? We're like usually in filmmaking, you're encouraged not to use text. It's like a cheap way. It was like a really fast way to tell things that's not very interesting and can get very crowded and whatever. But I'm not like, okay, well, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it more poetically. And there's, it's, it's endless. But it, it does take a little bit of back and forth. You have to try things out, see how they work to move on. And I think I'm making progress right now. It just takes a damn long time when you're like really obsessed with the project. You're just going to ultimately trust your gut on this? Yeah. Because like it's part of the, the last comment, I guess, on this is uh, there were some comments on the accents, right? Because I didn't know this until we were talking about it that night, that there are very different different countries that have different accents. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, right? Because like Chinese accents are very depending on where you're, you're speaking from. Like Arabic is the same way. <laughs> so Chadian Arabic versus Saudi Arabic versus others. And we had folks from that were here for the for the screening that that grew up and even on different sides of Saudi had like different uh, different accents. The question of Saudi Arabic accent in that film is super interesting. And the way that I had written the narration is it's based on Chadian Arabic, which is what I grew up speaking. Because Chadian Arabic is so relatively unknown, you have to kind of modify it like when you go to places. So I have to, to kind of learn the accent of the place I'm going which includes elements of lexicon and syntax and like small changes here and there. Um, Cause otherwise people won't understand me. Right. So I have to, so I will go to Saudi Arabia from Chad. I have to speak some degree of Saudi Arabic and that in that film, I'm, I'm telling sort of a very personal narration based on how I would talk to a certain uh, person in Saudi Arabia. That's a mixture of my Chadian accent but kind of like modified by whatever i picked up while living in jidda for a couple years so at the end of the day when i put that narration to tape like for the film there were a few words here and there that are you know arabic words like they're in chad used as the primary word but in saudi arabia they would be like a auxiliary word or they might mean something else and those words were distracting enough for saudi people in the feedback screening to the extent that they like wanted them gone. Like, so this is people that they understand I'm speaking Chadian Arabic or I'm using a Chadian word or whatever. And that's the way I would speak or whatever. But they were like, this was distracting and I can't get past it. Mm. And that's a big moment for me because if I was to change that yeah. and to completely Saudicize my accent or something, it would be kind of like a sellout move yeah, for me. Yeah, you wouldn't be true to yourself. Definitely not true to myself. Yeah. And definitely not true to myself in the context of like a hegemonic dialect. So like a, like a version of Arabic that is that already often is is leveraged above other dialects maybe not by saudis themselves but by other people thinking that like saudi arabic is like a pure dialect or something like that so it's a really weird position to be in so one solution is to write what i i could literally write what i said and it wouldn't be as aggravating to saudi ears but do you see this as like a way to also um you have a platform to i don't want to say educate the world but to have this open conversation about yeah, yeah. Right? Like the nuances that <laughs> and you're maybe killing the me. don't know. Because this is exactly the questions I'm dealing with in the narration of the script right now. So I'm, now I'm the, the solution for the moment is to rewrite things. So at the moment, I'm just trying to like 
address these things that are kind of unanswered. And one way to do that is to put a line. It's a narrative. So it is a, it is a, uh, you know, a non work of nonfiction, right. But which also has the subjectivity of my voice. And I can straight up and put a line in there that says my accent infuriated some people from Saudi Arabia that heard this, you know, like, or like, you know, my accent made it tough for some people to like focus on my story. But I can't change who I am and then keep telling the story. Yeah. Right. And I think that would that would alleviate that would straight up alleviate it. Like that would that would be one way to do it. But in, in editing in a in that, in this film is a twenty minute film, that's still a lot of time. That would be fifteen seconds. That is that is not the end of the world, but did that fifteen seconds now open me up to another challenge of getting back to the narrative? Did I distract people with that mm -hmm. comment? Did I have to set it up? Was it actually thirty seconds? Was it a whole minute? That I have to take a beat of a car passing on screen to like change as a palate cleanser what we're watching. So it's a big puzzle piece in the end, these kind of films. And you're not following a screenplay in the sense that you would for fiction film, which is more as a blueprint. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, GH5. I, the film people are going to really call me out for this. Uh, Panasonic GH5. Really good mirrorless camera as well. It's up there with the Sony. I didn't mention it earlier. It's been killing me the whole time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bentley. I want you to plug all of the platforms that you're on, TikTok being the one. I'm not on TikTok, but you are have a very, very devoted following on TikTok, of which I think a subset of, are also on Instagram. And I don't know, do you have a video platform or mm -hmm. et cetera? So yeah, for most of my like social media stuff is at Weld Brown, W-A-L-D-B-R-O-W-N. That's going to be Instagram, uh, Twitter, and TikTok. And then... Uh, Abu Digan Films is the name of my film company. So Abu Digan, which which is like a childhood, like a teenage nickname or whatever, meaning like the the guy with a beard, essentially. <laughs> um, a b o u d i g i n. dot com. You'll you'll find links to films there or like trailers or related material. And Vimeo is similar. So Vimeo and then Abu Digan account on Vimeo um, is a good place to see some samples of movies as well if people want to get in touch with you about screening a film or other things is social media the best way to connect with you social media is not a good way to connect with me they should email me bentley at abudigan.com awesome yeah. <laughs> this was such a pleasure <laughs> pleasure's mine okay i guess we'll wrap there cool thank you so much bentley good luck with everything coming up i'm sure we'll talk again soon. And that's a wrap for this episode of Taiwanese Diaspora and Friends, part of the New Friendspiration series. If you have any comments or feedback, feel free to reach out to me on social. I am at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A on Instagram, and that's probably the best way to contact me. All right. I will see you next time.